Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5. This morning we're going to return to the study of the Gospel of Matthew. We were doing this back in the summer and early fall. Took a break during Advent and maybe some other weeks. And uh, now we're back. Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20. As we return, and perhaps one of the reasons that it took so long to return is that um, I knew that when we returned, we faced a really difficult passage, a really difficult issue. What is the place of the Old Testament law in the life of a Christian today? Throughout history, many answers have been given to that, but the controversy continues. And even when we think we've got it all worked out and we've got a nice little system, uh, we don't have to look long and we'll find inconsistencies in ourselves. For example, we all easily embrace as binding the command of Leviticus 19, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But we disregard the very next verse, which says, which condemns wearing garments made of two kinds of material. Cotton, polyester, rayon, wool, silk, blends. That's the next verse. Or we embrace the law's condemnation of homosexuality and we get up on our high horse about that in Leviticus 20. But we ignore that the same chapter demands that we stone to death adulterers and, and kids that curse their parents. Or we consider it a binding commandment to keep the Sabbath day. But somehow we overlook that we change the day. Make no mistake, this is a difficult question. What exactly are we to make of God's laws presented to us in the law and the prophet in the Old Testament? Well, today we're going to hear something about about it. We're going to hear what Jesus says. Matthew 5, verse 17 to 20. Let me read it. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. I'd like to boil this down to two truths. Two seemingly contradictory truths, I'll tell you right up front. The first is this. Jesus has fulfilled the whole law. Jesus has fulfilled the whole law. Make no mistake, that's Jesus' explicit claim here. Verse 17, I have not come to abolish the law, the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And again in verse 18, nothing will disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Two key words there. Fulfill, which has the sense of filling or finishing or performing or completing. And the word accomplished, which according to the lexicon Lonida, uh, means to happen with the implication that what happens is different from a previous state. Accomplished, where there's something new has happened. So Jesus has fulfilled the whole law. It is accomplished. 
There's some straightforward statements in the New Testament which say this. Romans 10, 4, for example, says Christ is the end of the law. End meaning the goal, the completion, the perfection of the law. He's what it's all about. Jesus has fulfilled the law. But we can also demonstrate that that's true in another way. The Old Testament laws have traditionally been divided into three parts. The civil law, or judicial law sometimes it's called, the ceremonial law, and the moral law. Now, I'm personally not fond of that division, uh, but it's widely accepted, so let's just use it to, uh, to make our first point here. Let's consider each of these. Consider first the judicial law, the civil law. In the Old Testament, God gave his people, Israel, ordinances to regulate them as a political unit. They were a nation with prescribed geographical boundaries, with a king designated by the Lord, with a system of government that God had outlined, with a prescribed court system and and sentences to maintain order, all of which set them apart from all the nations around them who were not part of that. But when Jesus came and died and rose again and, and ascended into heaven and sent his disciples then out into those pagan nations, he did not tell them to gather us, all us Gentiles, gather us up and cart us off to Jerusalem so we could become citizens of Israel. No. He instructed us to obey the authority under which we find ourselves in whatever nation we live. In other words, according to the way Ephesians 2 talks about it, he broke down that dividing wall between Israel and the Gentiles. He broke it down, according to Ephesians 2, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances in order to create one new body, his church. So in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, when the elders and apostles gathered, they they, they said clearly... Believing Gentiles do not need to become Jews and come under the judicial law of Israel. Why not? Because Jesus has fulfilled that. Its purpose is finished. Or consider the ceremonial law. In the law of Moses, God prescribed an intricate system of worship a tabernacle, later a temple, built according to God's detailed specifications, a priesthood with direct succession all the way back to Aaron, Moses' brother, a designated, a designated holy days or feast days with rules for their observance, and a system of sacrifices by which sin was atoned for and God was worshipped. There was no other way No other place that God might be worshipped but this, according to the ceremonial law. But in Christ, all those ceremonial laws have been fulfilled. So that in the New Testament, we read about the temple. We read that Jesus is the temple through whom we meet the Lord. He is the veil of the temple uh, through which we we enter into the presence of God. He is the true and final Passover lamb. The the blameless lamb who was sacrificed to save us. 
He is the great high priest, the, the mediator and intercessor who brings us to God. The scripture leaves no doubt about these things. According to Colossians 2, verse 17, these ceremonial laws were but, quote, a shadow of things to come, but the reality is found in Christ. Hebrews 10 says the same thing. The law was only a shadow of things to come, not the reality itself. For that reality is found in Jesus who has fulfilled the ceremonial law. In fact, its fulfillment is so profound that in the book of Hebrews, we learn that it would be now sin to say we're going to go back to the ceremonial law and worship that way. That would be to abandon Christ, for it is now obsolete, for Jesus has fulfilled it. Then the third thing, uh, the third uh, part of the law is the moral law. Consider that Christ has also fulfilled the moral law. Now, the moral law is a term given to the heart of the Old Testament law. It's the summary of God's law that's found in the Ten Commandments primarily. And even uh, the further summary contained in the first and greatest commandment. Uh, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. These summaries of the law are called the moral law. Although all the law was moral, I don't know quite what the distinction is, but nonetheless, that's what it's called. Now, many Christians, including uh, the Reformed tradition of which we are part, admittedly, would say that Christ fulfilled the civil law and Christ fulfilled the ceremonial law, but the moral law, the Ten Commandments, remains unchanged. And the fact that nine out of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the instruction of the New Testament makes that sound reasonable. But the truth is, Jesus fulfilled even the moral law. That it has to be true, or none of us could be saved. In 2 Corinthians 3, the apostle contrasted the Old Testament ministry of the law with the New Testament ministry of the Holy Spirit. In that comparison, he speaks of the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone. Folks, that's the Ten Commandments he's talking about. That's what was engraved in stone by God himself. But they could only bring condemnation and death. But because of what Jesus accomplished, Paul now says he has a ministry of the Spirit. And that's more glorious, for it does not just condemn, it brings righteousness. Now that's the contrast Jesus is making in the very last verse of our text here. Unless your righteousness surpasses unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees and and teachers of the law were experts in the law. They were experts in the minutia of the law. And they were meticulous. Remember, they tithed their spices. You probably don't do that. And since the law defined God's righteousness, when they meticulously kept it, They then thought, we are righteous. 
But Jesus said, oh, no, that's not good enough. Being as righteous as the Pharisees or the teachers of the law is not going to get you into the, into the kingdom of heaven. It will never be enough. For the law has no power to change us and make us righteous. It was only designed to be an absolutely straight edge that shows how crooked we are. And because the law is absolutely righteous, it absolutely condemns every deviation from the norm. So what do we need to enter into the kingdom of heaven? How could we ever gain a righteousness that was greater than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? We need Jesus, who fulfilled even the moral law. He earned his right standing before the Father by perfectly keeping the law. This is the gospel. We could never earn righteousness by striving to keep the law, for the law exposes our unrighteousness and condemns us. But what we could never earn, Jesus earned for us by his perfect life and his death. And then he gave his righteousness to those who trust him so that we may stand clean before the Lord. That is the way into the kingdom which, which the Lord is talking about here. The way which surpasses the efforts of the Pharisees and receives Christ's righteousness. Christ's perfect completion of the law as a gift to us. Recently, we studied the book of Galatians. This is the message of the whole book. You cannot be saved by keeping the law. You can only be right with God by trusting in what Jesus has done in your place. For what the law could never do, Jesus has done. He has fulfilled the whole law in order that he might save those who trust him. That's the first truth. There's another truth here, which brings us to our second point. First of all, Jesus fulfilled the whole law. Secondly, all of God's law applies to us. All of God's law applies to us. As we were talking about Jesus fulfilling the whole law, and about the word fulfill and the word accomplish, some of you may have been looking at the text and saying, wait a minute, in this text, Jesus said he did not come to abolish the law. Indeed, that not even the smallest letter of the law should disappear, and it's dangerous for us to disregard the law. That's right. God's law applies to us. But the issue is, in what manner does it continue to apply? For it applies to us differently than it applied to Israel, to whom it was given. For Israel, the law and the prophets, the Old Testament scriptures, they were the law of the land. Every part of it, whether the civil code or the ceremonial uh, uh, requirements or the Ten Commandments, every part of it was God's direct law to Israel. It was the legal code for the nation. It was to be literally believed. It was to be faithfully practiced with every transgression uh, punished and carefully passed on to the next generation. But since Jesus has come and has fulfilled the entire law, its application has now changed. Though it is difficult to define exactly what that means, that it's changed. 
What's the difference between what the law was to Israel and what the law is to the Christian today? The best definition I've ever found is a statement in a paper written by Dr. David Dorsey, who's a late professor of Old Testament at the Evangelical School of Theology in Pennsylvania. He writes saying two things, and I want you to listen carefully to these. Two things. The first is this. Simply stated, he says, legally, none of the 613 stipulations of the, of the Sinaitic covenant, that's the Old Testament law, are binding upon New Testament Christians, including the so-called moral law. That's the first thing. Legally, none of the 613 stipulations of the law are binding on us, including the moral law. Second thing, while in a revelatory and pedagogical sense, all 613 stipulations of the law are binding upon us, including even the ceremonial law and the civil law. Did you get that? Now read again. Simply stated, legally, none of the 613 stipulations of the Sinaitic Covenant are binding upon New Testament Christians, including even the Ten Commandments. While in a revelatory and pedagogical sense, all 613 stipulations of the law are binding upon us, including even the ceremonial law and the civil law. In other words, Dorsey's saying this. Legally, none of the laws are binding on us today. But in another sense, all of the laws are binding on us today. We don't have to divide the law up into pieces it's all fulfilled in Christ, and it all is binding on us. The distinction is between laws being legally, literally binding and, 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 and them being part of God's revelation of himself and useful as teaching tools that we might know him. And this is the use of the Old Testament law that, that applies not just to the Ten Commandments, but to the whole word of God given to ancient Israel. This approach to the Old Testament does uh, two things for us. It allows us to be realistic about the differences between ancient Israel and modern America. We do not live in the land of Canaan. We don't live in that culture. We don't live in that climate. We don't live in that part of the world. We don't live. It's totally foreign to us. And yet, it allows us to, to figure out what those laws mean for us. It's not the literal adoption of Israel's laws as the law of the land, which is largely impossible. But it preserves the conviction voiced by Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So realistically, how do we do this? Well, as we come to a portion of the Old Testament, we admit this law is not primarily our law. This is primarily Israel's law. So we don't have to twist it and stretch it and pretend it literally fits our situation because it may not. 
Neither do we automatically begin to spiritualize it or allegorize it or somehow explain it away. What we do need to do is to understand the original setting and meaning of that law. We're trying to stand on the shoulders of Old Testament believers when we read the law given to them. But to do that, we need to understand and take it seriously, both that situation and how God addressed it. For every law given to whomever it was given speaks volumes about the lawgiver. Tells us what his concern is. Tells us why it matters. Tells us what this particular of God, command of God uh, shows us about the Lord himself. And only when we have understood that original setting are we able to make applications to our situation, which is different. Now, may I suggest that this is how the New Testament writers dealt with the Old Testament law. Consider 1 Corinthians 9.9. That's that verse printed in your bulletin for the offering today. For it is written in the law of Moses, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned 1 Corinthians 9, the apostle was speaking to people far removed, far removed from the law, this law given in Deuteronomy 25. His readers were Gentiles. This law was given to the Jews living in the land of Canaan. His his, uh, readers are big city people. This text is about Jewish farmer. Paul's concern was for their giving to support the work of of missions. That text is talking about a man raising his crops and dealing with his animals. But the apostle grasped what God was saying to the farmer. And once he understood that, he could apply it to the folks at Corinth. In that commandment from Deuteronomy 25, God forbade the muzzling of an ox which was harvesting grain, food for the farmer. Here we learn of God's concern for the needs of those doing the work, even the oxen. God was concerned with the equity of the situation. You can't starve your oxen while they are providing food for you. Once Paul understood the principles set forth in the law, he applied it to the situation in Corinth. People were going out to preach the gospel and plant churches. They were giving themselves away for the benefit of the gospel. But they did not have what they needed. They were often hungry, sometimes homeless. So Paul points the church to this law in Deuteronomy with the question, is God only concerned about oxen or isn't this for us too? Well, the same principle applied to the very different situation in Corinth. The one bringing in the harvest has a right to eat of that harvest. So the one preaching the gospel, going as a missionary to speak the gospel, should receive a living from that work. That law, in its simple, straightforward, literal sense, was not legally binding on the people of Corinth. It wasn't written to them. It was written to Jews, not Gentiles, and many, many miles away and many, many years earlier. But it told them about the Lord. And it helped them to understand God's will for them in the situation in which they lived. Showing that though the law is no longer legally binding on us as it was on Israel, 
all of God's law still applies to us. You see, once we understand that, though we live in a completely different time and place, we can say with David from the depths of our heart, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it day and night. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to to my mouth. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. Two things to take home this morning. Jesus fulfilled the whole law. But at the same time, same time, in another sense, all of God's law still applies to you and me. Much ink, much ink has been spilled fueling controversies over our use of the law. And frankly, I have no desire to argue about it. I hate the fights. But we have to know how to apply God's word to our situation. This is a question I've struggled with for years. This morning, I simply share with you what I've learned so far. So that you too might be better equipped to love God's law and rightly apply it to your Christian walk. May God grant us such wisdom. Amen. Let's pray.